You're listening to episode 40. This is Grace on Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered, gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, Grace Nation. Super excited to be here with you on the show today. So many things on my mind. And my name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor. And my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. And uh, I just got to tell you something today. I am so pumped up about today's episode. We're going to be talking about a lot of things today, and the deep, deep, deep theology is going to flow. So prepare yourself for knowledge, because we're going to bring you some street theology today that I think is going to rock your world just a little bit. But today's show is we are talking about something that is very, 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 um, it's, it's just becoming one of those critical areas of ministry that I believe nobody is talking about it. Actually, there's a lot of people talking about it, but it's still probably way off in the corner, sort of tucked over into the recesses of, you know, the church. And that is parents of gay kids. We're talking about parents of gay children. And, you know, I titled this today, Why Parents of Gay Children Are Scared to Death of the Church. And the fact of the matter is, is that I I routinely talk with parents who, you know, they're just afraid of their church. I received some feedback from a comment that was made on my website, uh, a complete stranger, somebody that's just been following and listening to the things that I have to say. Thank you so much if you're listening, by the way. And, um, you know, she was just writing and talking about her husband and uh, the the challenges and the journey that they've been with their gay son. And, uh, you know, they, they left the church because they were scared of it. They didn't feel the support. And if you're a parent today and you're listening to the show because you, you found my website, and you're listening to this and you're saying, yeah, that's me. I'm scared. We are talking today about the closet because what i think happens here is that when kids come out of the closet parents usually go into it and the closet is a deadly deadly place to be so we're talking about that today here on grace on fire also we're going to be continually looking at romans chapter 8 which is one of my favorite passages in the entire bible that passage is just loaded with spiritual meat that you can just eat and digest for great lengths of time. It just continues to nourish and feed my soul. So we're going to be looking at that today, some theology on the street, asking ourselves what saved really means. Also, we're going to be looking at a life hack for you, and it's a book that I want to recommend. I've recommended it here on the show, but I'm going to elucidate a little bit more today, and then we're going to get right into our question here on when parents go into the closet and how parents... And really, I just let me just say this right up front. I think parents, you are ground zero for ministry in this world today to those who are living in the gay community, to those who have found themselves there. You have children there. And let me just tell you something right now. You're it. You're the most important person in this conversation. And I want to help you today to equip you to love your kids. So let's get into this here on Grace on Fire. 
Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. Okay, so last week we ended uh, the Theology on the Street segment. And uh, what we were do- where we were looking at, what we were looking at, what we were looking at is Paul's statement about our Abba Daddy. Now, again, I told you last week that I really struggle with the whole Abba Daddy language, but it's funny because it comes up over and over again. If you read through Scripture, I just read through the Book of Mark today, where Jesus, right before he is he is arrested, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he he feels the weight of pressure on him, and he cries out to his Abba Daddy. That just blew me away today. Go read it. It's in Mark chapter 14. It's after the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper, and he's taking his boneheaded disciples who are, yeah, okay, Jesus. I mean, they're totally unaware of what's getting ready to happen. And he cries out to his Abba Father. He calls out to Abba. And man, I I was blown away by that, at that little phrase, you know, because I knew I was going to get on here today. And so we see Abba here in... Romans chapter 8, but I would just tell you, if you're still sort of hung up on the on the daddy concept of God, which, hey, listen, I told you, that's a genuine issue. I know I have that issue, and I told you last week that the way that I look at God is not through just sort of this touchy-feely sort of thing, but I look at, I look at God's loyalty as I look at it through my own father and God's loyalty to me. And there was that Abba Daddy moment with Jesus where he was reaching out before he was crucified, before he was arrested, and really was beat up, and he's just crying out to his Abba Daddy. I thought that was really cool. But anyways, what we're going to do today is continue to look at chapter 8. And I want to kind of talk to you right up front here about the problems with grace. Now, I, I, you know, I routinely run into this problem. And the problem is, is that people fear that if you preach grace— that if you preach grace in any way, that somehow you're going to detract from the law of God. Now, I cannot, for the life of me, understand what the hiccup is for people's brains and where this issue comes up, where people are so afraid that if you preach grace, that somehow that you preach liberty and preach grace, that somehow that you're going to, you know, preach sin. I, you know, I just don't understand. I know what antinomianism is. Antinomianism, by the way, is that whole idea of universalism, where it doesn't really matter what you mean because I got covered in grace. I kind of, you know, I covered that um, two episodes ago. And we're not talking about that today. But there is still this hang up with grace. And so that people think that, yes, I know I'm covered by God's grace, but God's law says this. I'm like, God's law, you know, which includes, by the way, the Gospels, and Jesus was really, I mean, he took a big, hard look at the Pharisees and like, you guys are missing the whole point. You know, it, it's this hang up with grace. And so what I want to do today is I want to just continue to march through chapter eight, because chapter eight is going to continue to show us this tension that we live in. And that's the tension. That's the problem. People don't know what to do with the tension, the tension between God's law and God's grace, the law of love, the law of grace. We simply do not know how to live in that tension. Martin Luther talks about this. He talks about this, that we are both sinner and saint, simultaneously sinner and saint. And that tension if you can settle inside that tension and feel the comfort of it, what you'll discover is, is that you're going to sin. 
Now, none of us wake up in the morning and say, hey, you know, um, I think I'm going to commit some sin today. Listen, if you think that way, you're probably missing out. Usually what happens is we commit sin, and then later on, we um, we we experience God's grace. I, I was just sitting here. I just had this thought of this statement that I made. It, it, it was... I don't know that it was sinful, but it was bad, and I confess it. But you know, I it, it, it's it's the problem of language. Anyways, okay, I'm not gonna go there. I want to go there, but you know, for those of you who are interested, you can contact me. But anyways, this idea of sinner and saint. Now, the problem is, the problem is, is that for those of us who are saints because we are not so clearly aware of our sin, or the other way, you know, we're sinners and we haven't really understood our sainthood. Whatever that balance is, if you're out of balance one way or the other, you're constantly going to run into a problem. So what I wanna do for you today is I want to stress yet another aspect of God to you so that you understand clearly what your relationship with God really is and who this God is. And I want to do that with you by actually giving you a prayer that comes out of the Anglican prayer book. Now, if you know me, I'm an Anglican minister, evangelical, but an Anglican minister nonetheless. And I I just love the prayer book for so many reasons. This is one of those reasons because in their prayers, in our prayer book, what we do is we shape these prayers in such a way that it just it speaks and communicates timeless truth. So listen to this. This is the prayer of humble access, and it's it's actually said in our communion services right before the words of institution or the prayer of consecration. So for those of you who go to Presbyterian Baptist churches, you might be you know familiar with the words of institution. You know, um, we call it the prayer of consecration. But anyways, this is the prayer. It's called the prayer of humble access. Here we go. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your grace alone. Now, notice that. That's critical. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our righteousness, but in your grace alone. We are not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table. Now, notice what this this prayer is doing. First of all, it eliminates any presumption. Now, for those who, you know, preach sloppy grace, they're full of presumption. This ver- this prayer actually removes presumption. We know that we're sinners. We know that we're sinners. But there's a word in here that's awesome. And this is what it says. It says, merciful Lord. Merciful Lord. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord. We, are, we recognize that we're not even gathered to gather up the crumbs under your table. It's just like the Syrophoenician woman in Mark where Jesus goes over and the woman says that even the dogs have rights to the crumbs. It's the same principle there. We're not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, Lord. But then it says, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Now, I love that. You are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Now, that is what the prayer is doing here is it's not appealing to anything within us. In fact, it goes so far to even say that we're not even worthy to gather up the crumbs from the table. In other words, even the dogs themselves have a right to the crumbs. We are even lower than the dogs. Do you notice that there's no presumption here? There's no bombastic 
realization here. This this is humility in in, in, in its fullest form, and yet the, it all presumes. I say that it doesn't presume, and then it presumes. It, 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 let me let me just kind of put it this way: it all swings on this idea of God's mercy, whose nature is to always have mercy. Now that's critical. Okay, when we say that God's very nature is to have mercy, that means that when you screwed up, God's nature, His first response is to have mercy, and how He did this, how He had mercy was through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, why does this matter? Okay, this is so critical. Because you need to understand that between the the balance between grace and law is only, it's only achieved when you realize that you can't do it apart from the law of the spirit of life. That's, that's all that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. Okay? So he's just, in Romans 1 through 15 there, that we covered in the last couple of weeks, he is telling you that you've got this problem, you have a divided soul, there's no hope for you. You cannot stop sinning. The only way that you're going to stop sinning or have the uh, the strength to resist temptation is if a foreign or new thing comes into your life, and that is the law of the spirit of life, okay? I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I keep hammering this. You say, man, Jonathan, you've been hammering this for four weeks. I have been hammering this four weeks because it's critical to understand because I'm so tired of Christians going around, you know, beating people up and, and acting like Pharisees, beating their kids up, all of these things, because they are forgetting that apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We're spiritually dead, people. We're like walking zombies. <laughs> it was actually my associate at my church, John Cox, who pointed that out to me, that if, if we could pull an example from you know, uh, pop culture today, you know, what would it be? It's zombies. You know, zombies are the living dead, right? You know, they walk around and they eat brains and all that kind of stuff, right? They're, they're literally these living corpses. But spiritually speaking, as Christians who buy into the Augustinian doctrine of sin, that is original sin, which is orthodoxy, you're spiritually dead. That's what Paul's talking about here. And sometimes I think that we forget that apart from the Spirit of God, the, the law of the Spirit coming inside of us, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. So Paul is now going to take this idea a little further, and this is what he's going to do, okay? Paul's going to take this idea further, and he's going to finish this up in the next set of verses. So let me read this to you, and then I'm going to give you three themes for you to think about, Okay. So here it goes. Romans 8, 16 through 25. The Spirit himself confirms to our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, verse 16. The role of the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer together with him so that we may also be glorified together with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly expecting creation awaits eagerly the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself 
also will be set free from its servility to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers agony together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves while we await eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved. But ho- that but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we await it eagerly with patient endurance. Now, if you're listening to this and you're driving to the car and you're, you know, whatever you're doing, out walking, or if you're like me, you know, you're, you're driving in the car and you're, 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 you're zoning in and out, pay attention to this, okay? Let's, just listen to this for just a moment, okay? Because this is, this is critical stuff. I mean, this is critical stuff. There are basically three themes here that I want to impact for you. First of all, it's the idea of suffering and glory. The second of all is the universal impact of sin. And third, the need for waiting. Now, we don't like to wait, and we'll get there in just a minute. But first of all, let's talk about the role of suffering and glory. Notice that he talks about right here in verse 17. He says that if indeed we suffer together with him, we may also be glorified together with him. For we are waiting. And then he goes on to say that, you know, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory to come. Okay, so that is that what Paul is saying here and what he is looking at is he's saying, even though we have the spirit of the law or we have the law of the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit residing in us and we've been liberated, we have now been adopted as heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, I heard somebody say that one time that, you know, Jesus Christ is my brother. Yeah, okay, that's not exactly what it's saying. It just says that you're heirs with Christ. It doesn't say that he's your homeboy and your bro. I, I, I just always, I always want to keep us and protect us that Jesus Christ is still Lord, all right? But he is at least saying and using language of adoption and that we are now children and we have the right to also approach God as our Abba Father, as our Abba Daddy. That's exactly what it's, what it's teaching here. But notice here something. It says also that we are suffering together with Christ. Now, it's this suffering that is the problem. All right? The suffering is the problem. If we didn't suffer, if Paul said, if he said it this way, now think about it. You know, if he has said that we are glorying in him and that we will be glorified together with him, and he didn't even mention suffering, then we would have a real problem. Because what he actually says here in verse 23 is that even we ourselves groan within ourselves while we are awaiting eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our body. So Paul is saying, he's looking at this world, he's looking at all of this, and he is saying to ourselves, hey, we are still going to suffer in this world. We're still going to suffer the effects of sin. So whenever you run across a situation where you thought that you should have gotten out of that and you still sinned and you're wondering what happened, it's because you're still suffering from the effects of sin. All right? We're not immune to that. Just because now that you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're you're now going to get out of sin. What it does mean that prior, prior 
to becoming a Christian or confessing Christ or whatever in your life, that prior you had no hope. Now you can go to your father when you have committed sin. And, and he's merciful. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, that, that blows my mind. That blows my mind. Far being it from the God who you know, carries a big club and wants to hit you over the head, this is a merciful God who eagerly is desiring to be merciful to you. And that even more, that he recognizes that we're still in this world of suffering and decay, but one day we're going to be glorified like Christ. And we're going to have new bodies. In other words, there's going to be a day that's coming when all of the problems that we face, whether it's our sexual identity, whether our sexual impulses are screwed up, whether um, we, you know, all of our addictions, whatever has captive, captivated our lives or held hostage in our lives, those things are gone. Boop, gone. That's awesome. But we need to understand that those things aren't going to automatically go away just because you're a Christian. We're still going to wrestle with the law of sin and death. I don't know how you can read this passage and not come to that conclusion. Because listen to what Paul goes on. Because then Paul talks about in this passage, and this is the second theme, the universal impact of suffering for the whole creation. In other words, is that when mankind sin and this law of sin and death entered into this world, Paul seems to be saying here that it had cosmic effects, that it had cosmic implications. That the chaos and evil of sin and the role of sin and death impacted the world, not just us, not just our morals, but the world. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and I want to make this very clear. It is this verse, these passages, that I believe explains why homosexuality happens. Here's what I mean, okay? Here's what I mean. It's saying here... For the creation, verse 20, for the creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. Okay? Now, Paul talks about earlier in Romans chapter 5, he talks about Adam and that in Adam, everybody died. Okay? So that if we go back into Genesis 2, excuse me, Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, he committed a federal sin that impacted all of creation. And I believe that it even impacted our bodies. And I believe that the reason why homosexuality occurs, that it's a natural occurring phenomenon given the fallen world that's what i believe that homosexuality is a natural occurring phenomenon given the fallen world now is that a result of dna is it a result of genes or something like that we don't know in fact science still has yet to put down definitively what causes homosexuality in the first place okay so we don't know but i think theologically we can come to this passage and understand that if creation, the whole broad universe, which includes our physical bodies, if it's been subjected to futility, then we should, we should include everything that is wrong in that creation, including when the creation itself is creating conflict in gender biology. I mean, I'm just telling you that this, this to me, seems like the theological case right here. 
So it goes on, for we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers agony together. There's that agon together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves while we wait eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our body. And that brings me to my third theme. And that is the need to wait for redemption. Here's, here's, here's the truth, okay? Here's the truth. And I know this has been a long street theology, but this is thick stuff today. And I really want you to get it, okay? Here it is. Here's the fact. I know I keep saying that. Are you ready? Come on. We want quick fixes from sin. We want to stop smoking, drinking, cussing, or hanging out with people that do. We want to automatically become Mother Teresa or whoever your patron saint is. And we all automatically want to have spiritual highs every single day. And it ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. It's just not. Paul himself is telling you that we have to wait. You see, sometimes as Christians... What we do is we oversell Christianity and we say, well, if you just accept Jesus Christ, all your problems will be taken care of. Well, let me tell you, if you buy into that, you're going to be extremely disappointed. This is why I can't stand Joel Osteen, because all he wants to do is to sell you the good stuff about Christianity. But he doesn't want to acknowledge the pain and the waiting that the Bible clearly teaches. And so when a person becomes a Christian who happens to be gay, they're not going to automatically stop having those feelings or those attractions. They're not going to stop automatically seeing themselves through that identity. It's just not going to happen. And yet we've sold a bill of goods and said that, yes, they can. But Paul is clearly, in my opinion, arguing something differently. Can they be substantially changed? Absolutely. Can they? Can those feelings substantially change over a lifetime? Sure. I don't want to take that away, but many brothers and sisters of mine over the years, as I've talked with them, say, you know, I still feel these things, and I wish I didn't. And see, the problem is, as Christians, is that we've oversold God's grace and God's love and God's change. We've oversold it, not recognizing that Paul himself says that there is an aspect of waiting. That doesn't mean that we have to be prisoners. No, it doesn't mean that at all, but just simply to acknowledge that, hey, we're not going to just automatically be perfect. And that's the whole point of the show, Grace on Fire, because I'm telling you that when you get to that point where you can cross over the hurdle of your pride and self-perfection and realize you're not perfect and you're going to make mistakes and you've embraced my principle of total depravity, you will experience freedom. Because then you're not going to start defining yourself by all the times that you screw up, but you're going to start defining yourself by the redemption that you've experienced. And it's a different way of looking at it. It's a different way of understanding the gospel. Because then you can go on and say, oh, God uses people just like me. And I don't know about you, but that's liberating to me. It's liberating because it frees me from the need to be perfect. It it liberates me from the need of having all the right answers. It liberates me from having all the right things to do. And I got to tell you, it just constantly brings me back to my whole point, which is the need for prayer. 
Because, beloved, I'm just going to tell you something right now, all right? Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, if you, if I could just get anything through to your minds as you're listening to my voice today, it's this. It's that you're going to screw up. Even today, even in an hour from now, maybe five minutes from now, you're going to have a failure. But go to the Lord in prayer. Go to the Lord in prayer. Why? Because God is merciful and his very nature is to have mercy. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. All right, I'm going to give you a quick, quick life hack here. And that is an answer to the question, why do men hate going to the church? And the answer is because we feminize the church. Actually, there's a great book out there that I highly recommend. If you're a man, go out and buy this book. If you're a pastor, go out and buy this book. And if you're a wife wondering why you're, what's wrong with your man, go out and buy this book. And if you're a single guy, go out and buy this book. All right. My point here is go out and buy this book. And it's this. It is David Murrow's Why Men Hate Going to Church. And let me just tell you why I'm um, really committing this book. I mean, we've got a problem in the church. And I've seen it in my church and I've seen it in other church. And that is there's a gender gap. There's just simply more women in church than men. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to the movies on a Sunday. I'd taken the day off from church. Now, don't send me email because I screwed up with the Sabbath. I don't want to hear that. I went to the movies with my kids on a Sunday because that was the time that I could do it. And here was the thing that I observed. There were more people at the movies while my church service was going on down the street than they were at my church. And I realized something. In our culture today, we have completely substituted going to church for all forms of of entertainment. And we wonder why only about 25% to 20%, in some cases, only 5% of people in the U.S. attend church or attend weekly services. I'm telling you, we got a serious problem and we're not going to solve it quickly. But the answer, I believe, is we have got to figure out how to bring the gospel to men. You know, so here's my takeaway in this whole book. What we need to do in the church is to do a better job of capturing the souls of men by intentionally speaking to the masculine soul. That's what I wrote down here, and I think that's true. We need to do a better job of capturing the souls of men by intentionally speaking to the masculine soul. But to do that, we've got to first understand the problem. So I think David's done a pretty good job here of his book, um, he's not a theologian. It's obvious that he's not a theologian because there's a couple things in there. I'm like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about because you're not a theologian. I'm a theologian and I pick up on these things, but I think it's written fairly well. And listen, you know, if you're if you're a, a leader in a church, go pick that up. And you know, you might think about it for your pastor. This isn't to pit men and women against each other. By the way, what it's to do is to say, okay, perhaps, perhaps we can do a better job. And if we just tweak a few things inside the church, perhaps we can do a better job of attracting men. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And that brings me to my feature presentation, which is this. Why are parents of gay children scared to death to go to church? And I think the answer is simple. I mean, it's... (laughs) It's simple. I mean, as the church, we've done a horrible job 
in this particular area. In fact, with the 30 years of culture wars that were waged, um, we, we've lost. We've lost the culture wars. I wish people would stop fighting them. I mean, I still see it on Facebook with all the elections now, President Trump, and it's it's just it's just raging, and I'm just sick of it. And um, unfortunately, it's our children who are caught in the crossfires of all of this. And it's been that way for 30 to 40 years. And so uh, it's no different today. I think it's getting better. But in the church, we have a long way to go. So I want to tell you a little bit about what my ministry is about so that for those of you who have fast forwarded all the way to this section, you know who I am. Because one of the things about, you know, five years ago, I began to embark into this area of research into the issues of gay Christianity, of the gay community, of individuals who are identifying themselves as LGBT plus, and they, are, you know, how does that interact with faith? And, and, you know, as the church, what can we do, you know, to minister to these people? And the fact of the matter is, is we do a horrible job. And what I've noticed is, is that part of the problem isn't just the church, but it's parents. And what happens with parents is that when their kids come out of the closet, they go in. When the parents, when the kids come out of the closet, the parents are shoved into that same space. And I, I'm not sure that anyone's really giving voice to this. And so I want to speak to it today because I think it is a real problem. And the problem is it goes like this. You've got a parents, you know, let's just say two parents, mom and dad, and they've worked really hard to uh, raise their son in the church. They send him to youth camp, you know, to Christian school, whatever. And then at about the age of 16, maybe 17 years old, he comes out of the closet and says, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. He might have slipped him a, a note. Could be a daughter. I've heard daughters like to give notes, whereas sons like just to come out and say it. Anyways, somehow they come out of the closet and they say they're gay. And then suddenly those parents, the whole world for those parents is flipped upside down. I have heard that story now over and over and over again. Sometimes it's in college. For women, it has a tendency to be a little bit later uh, in college and after they're adults. And I think the reason for that is because for young men who are more effeminate, they're parts of ridicule. They have uh, different kinds of issues. And so very often the closet experience for boys occurs younger in their life versus women. And I don't want to get into that. And I'm not, and this is generalizations here. Don't, so don't, don't get upset. But my point here is that something happens, the, the child comes out, and then the parents freak out. I, you know, at the very beginning of the show, I received a comment on uh, my blog where a parent reached out to me and said that they have been out of church for five years because their son came out of the closet, that their son told them that they were gay, and they didn't know what to do. They were afraid of their church. I mean, that breaks my heart. I got to tell you, that just breaks my heart because the church is not supposed to be a place of, of shame. I mean, if we get the gospel right, the church is not supposed to be a place of shame. But my whole point of grace on fire while I'm doing the show is, is we don't get the gospel right. We always screw it up. And so how do we handle this today? And you know, where where do we go and, and what do we do? And, and the point here is this. We need to understand that a massive rift has taken place between the parents and the child. And as the children grow older, and I've seen this particularly with parents, older parents who have grown children now who are adults who may even be living in relationships uh, with their partners. And, and the adults are just... 
they're just paralyzed. They're paralyzed. They don't know if they should go to the weddings. Um, they haven't spoken to their son or daughter in years. And, you know, they're just, they come to me and they're, and they're depressed and they're lonely and they're frightened and they're, they just carry with them this sense of shame that they did something wrong. And I just want you to understand something that you may have done everything right and it still doesn't explain what happened. And, you know, there may have been some things, some traumas that occurred in your life that you were a part of and that you actually did and your culprits in it. That's probably true, too. But that doesn't matter. What matters is, is that now you're stuck in a closet. You're ashamed. You're lonely. It could even create pressures in the marriage itself. And now you're just living with this shroud. And the question is, are you being liberated? You see, the closet is a place of isolation. It's a prison. If Jesus said that I have pro, I have come to proclaim uh, release to the captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to bring liberty to captives, then if you're feeling in stuck, if you're stuck in this closet, then how are you experiencing any of the liberating benefits of the gospel? I hope you're following me here. And what I think needs to take place in the minds of parents is the following, is that first of all, the church has done you a disfavor because the church has said homosexuality is the litmus test of Christian faith. Homosexuality is not the litmus test litmus test of the Christian faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is the litmus test of faith. All right? I just want to be very clear about this. Now, Orthodox Christianity has said and continues to teach and traditionally teach, and that is um, biblical Christianity, has always taught that homosexual behavior is condemned in the Bible, but nowhere in the Bible, all right? There's only about six to eight verses in the whole thick book. Does it say that homosexuality will preclude a person from going to heaven, even if that person calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nowhere in Scripture does it preclude that. It does call it sin, but it does not preclude a person from going to heaven. And I think that the part of the problem is, is that it's created this litmus test, and does that mean that you know we say and we approve of it? And we'll, we'll get into all of that in just a moment. But my point here is this, is that we've taken one issue and we've elevated it above And then we've judged everybody by this where scripture doesn't actually do that. If you go back to Romans chapter one, by the way, you're going to see all kinds of sins that are talked about in that. And yes, homosexual behavior is mentioned, but so is gossip, cheating, lying, and a whole bunch of other issues, all of which I've probably been guilty of at some point. Now, here is the other thing. And now I've got my friend, Bill Henson, and I've, I interviewed him back in November and, um, you know, Bill and I, we sat and talked and Bill said, hey, look, he said, look at the statistics of Christians that are using pornography. You know, does that, does pornography preclude you from getting into heaven? You think about that for just a moment. Ooh. How many dads are hating up on their sons and meanwhile, they're going into their own closets at night when their moms, when mom and, and their kids are asleep and they're looking at HBO or they're on their phones looking at pornography. Don't come and wag your fingers at your son if you're doing that, all right? Because it puts you in the same boat. So we need to understand, 
And we need to understand this right now, that if you're a parent, you need to realize that this is not the sole defining issue that everyone thinks it is. It is a problem, and it is a sin, and there are ways to kind of go through this. But it's just like any other sin in the world, and we want to talk about that today. So here's what I want you to do. There, there, is, there is a massive rift that happens. The person, the parents now find themselves in the closet, and the question is why? Well, Bill Henson, he has a great resource out there that's called Guiding Families. I'll give you the link on my on jonathangsmith.com forward slash GOF40. And uh, I'll have a link on there, and you can go to Bill's website and get this resource. But it's called Guiding Families. And this whole resource that he's put together is designed to help families, particularly to help parents as well as you know youth pastors and others, to help them um, deal with the fact that when a son or daughter comes out of the closet. Now, where I kind of come into this is I'm saying, okay, your son and daughter's already come out of the closet. Now you're stuck in the closet. Now we need to help you get out of the closet. But he always talks about the problems that happen. And one of the big problems that happens is that there's immediately a family rejection as well as something he calls family disconnection. And the big issue for Bill is that he is, he is recognizing and realizing that suicidality, that is that when teens and young adults are feeling this massive rejection and pressure, that they do have a tendency, they have a 4 to 8% higher rate of suicide than their straight peers. I mean, a lot of it has to do with intense bullying as well. And part of it also is a result of the repressing their identity until they can't stand anymore, and then they sort of explode and they go through this whole phase. Let me just tell you something. If you really understand sexual identity formation and the process that a person goes through to say, I'm gay, and if you really understand the weight and the gravity of that phrase, let me just tell you something. When a person comes out and they say that to you, your first reaction shouldn't be fear. You need to put your arms around them and hug them and to tell them this, I love you and I accept you. But as as Christian parents, we're scared to death of doing that. And here's why. Because we have confused acceptance with approval. Now, I went and looked this definition up. And the fact of the matter is, in English, acceptance and approval really are sort of intermixed together. In fact, (laughs) I actually couldn't find a definition that didn't have both words in it. So there's a nuance in English that we really need to work through. But before we get to that that nuance, let me just kind of explain to you what all of these things are, okay? Well, let let me just do it this way. First of all, let me talk about the parents and the fear of acceptance, okay? Because there's really only three reactions here, right? There's acceptance, rejection, or disconnection. And Christian parents are afraid of acceptance, but you you don't need to be. So what's the difference between acceptance and approval, all right? Well, according to this definition of acceptance, it is the action or process of being received as adequate or suitable typically to be admitted into a group. You've been accepted. For example, a kid goes into college, he puts an application in, he's been accepted to enter into a program. Does that mean automatically that they're going to be, um, you know, a a Gator student? No. Why? Because they have to go through a whole process at the University of Florida, go Gators, to become a University of Florida graduate, right? They've been accepted, but they're not necessarily in. But they've been admitted, okay? Accepted does not mean approval. 
Accepted means accepted. And then there is approval, which is officially accept as satisfactory. Now notice the nuance here, okay, between acceptance and approval. Acceptance means, you know what? You're a member of my family. I accept who you are. I accept what you're saying. Even though it's difficult for me right now, nothing's going to change on how I feel about you. I love you. You're my son or daughter, and I'm going to be your parent for the rest of your life. That is acceptance. It's critical to understand that piece. But then there is the aspect of approval. And what as Christians, what happens is, is they say, well, I don't want to accept them because I don't want them to think that I condone their behavior. Now, is the, you're, you're missing the point. They're your daughter. It didn't change. They've been gay or having same-sex attraction feelings for years, and you didn't know it, and that never changed anything how you felt. All of a sudden, you've had new information come in, and it's changed your paradigm? No. They're still your son or daughter. It's so critical to really understand this because as Christians, this false dichotomy actually enters in, and this false dichotomy is between faith and identity. And suddenly, because your kids are identifying themselves what you think is contrary to your faith identity, now you think you have to choose, but Jesus never says that. If you've been following my logic through the street theology, you've known and you've heard me say at this point that, look, our fallen brokenness causes us to do and say all kinds of things. So you may not approve of what they're saying, but you need to accept them. And it's a big, big difference. And I think that was one of the most important takeaways from Bill Henson's uh, posture shift seminars and his resources that he's created. Because I think what has happened with parents, and particularly in the church, is that we've actually, we've created this closet, we've shoved parents into the closet, and we force them to make a choice between the church or their kids. And sometimes the parents choose the church, sometimes the parents choose the kid. And in either case, they're shoved into a closet, and it's not fair. It's simply not fair. And if you're a parent, and you're hearing this, and you're feeling this way, I want you to know right now that you need to get out of that church and you need to find a place that preaches the love and grace of Jesus Christ. All right? Because it's critical for your own spiritual health that you remain part of a spiritual community that's going to support and love you and accept you as a parent just like you as the parent will accept your son or daughter. There is no, it works in all these different ways and and that's part of the problem that I see here over and over and over again. So that what happens with the closet for parents, all right? Well, the closet for the parents is that, you know, there's a problem with disconnection. And this is where I think the real issue is between parents and kids, okay? Here it is. A team, Bill writes this. He says, a team comes out, her parents hug her, they cry, they say, we love you no matter what. Afterward, the topic is never raised again because parents are uncomfortable with homosexuality. This silence leaves a young person isolated, carrying internal stress out of her own strength, holding the stress in rather than verbalizing it in a safe conversation, raises the risk of suicidal ideation. We can say that disconnection, even in a loving home, operates similarly to active forms of rejection. Although family disconnection actually looks loving, it can produce similar risks for young people. Disconnection from kids and parents, in my opinion, is the worst thing that can happen. 
And I see this. I mean, I've seen it in my ministry. I've even seen pastors do this thing to their kids. And it's like they don't know how to talk to them. And, you know, that's the worst thing. You see, I think what this is what I think spiritually happens. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes that we're in the spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And so what I think happens is, is that if the enemy knows that he can create a division between the kids and the parents, creating isolation, then he can pick off each one. The parents become useless in sharing the gospel and modeling the gospel and preaching the gospel because they're so distraught and overcome with their own problems and the own things that they've screwed up or their own self-righteousness, which is even worse in my opinion. I've seen that. And the kids now feel estranged from their parents, the very ones that they need to be utterly dependent upon in order to survive this cruel world. And so you see here where parents, particularly Christian parents, you've got a real problem here. And that's the, that's the closet that I'm talking about. It's the psychological closet. You may go into church, and here's, here's what it looks like. You go into church, and you're looking around, and you have this, just this downtrodden view and people are asking her, hey, are you okay? You, you know, you seem gloom today. No, I'm fine. Thanks. Because you got a lot on my mind. Oh, you know, we're having problems with our, our kids. Oh, really? What's the matter? Eh, you know, oh, so-and-so's just got involved in a bad relationship and uh, blah, 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 whatever. And you're burning up on the inside. Or you hear the preacher up there preaching on Romans 1, you know, and all of a sudden you just feel the guilt and shame and the condemnation and you don't hear any grace being preached. And you're not even worse. You're not even being taught how to apply grace into this situation. I mean, I think that that's a really critical, critical problem. And so now you're in this closet. And your reaction is, is that you go home from the church and you look at your kids and you're psychologically empty and spiritually empty and unable to cope and deal with your kids' problems. And they're looking at you and saying, they're rejecting me because they're not bringing it up. And everybody loses. Everybody loses. So this is the problem. So I'm going to give you some advice, some things that I think is your pastor. And remember, I'm your virtual pastor now. You go talk to your pastor. But first of all, I think you need to reject the faith identity and sexual identity dichotomy. I think you need to reject that. They are not necessarily opposed to one another. Jesus hung out with sinners just like you and I, and it never compromised his witness. He never compromised. Even further, you're not perfect. You still sin, as we've established earlier and you have all kinds of sins, although they may not be as known as well. And your sin is no different than some other sin. And you need to look at your kids and you need to look at them and love them as sinners, just as Christ loved sinners. Number two, I think you need to reestablish communication with your children as quickly as possible. And if you have, you know, given harsh words, or even worse, a condemning silence, you know, you need to ask for their forgiveness. You need to apologize and say, you know, I have not loved you. The great commandment of Jesus is to love God and to love neighbor. He doesn't say, love God, oh, and you only have to love a few of your neighbors, particularly if they align with your theological points of view. No, he just says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Your children are your neighbor's. 
The second great commandment is one of the most important scriptures to apply in the whole Bible. And Jesus tells us that, to love your neighbors as yourself. Number three, I think you need to view your children as a mission, demonstrating God's love and grace to them. You say, well, I tried to do that. Well, I understand. I get that. But view them as a mission. View them as a long-term proposition. That something's happened, and now you want to bring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into their adult lives. And believe it or not, that's going to be a lifetime process for them. And you need to demonstrate God's love to them so that while they were yet sinners, as the Bible says, Christ died for them. And to understand that the loving Abba Father is there for them as well. And I think finally you need to find another church that will love and support you. Or at very least find a community that will empower you to work through this problem. There's a great, great organization. It's called Hope for Wholeness. You can go to their website. I'll have a link on my show at jonathangsmith.com forward slash GOF40. And um, there's a link there that you can find a referral network. But find a church, find a group that you can work through this. Because it's hard. It's painful. Your expectations have been uh, let down. And now you have to apply grace in a very important area. And your life spirit and your children's spiritual lives may very well depend upon it. And that brings me to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen and amen. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit jonathangsmith.com slash graceonfire.